reminder, I'm, my name is Marty Cates. I'm the associate uh, pastor here. Uh, Sean was out of town this week. He was moving his oldest uh, child from Boston to Orlando, so he had a week full of driving the East Coast of the United States. I know, we are all very envious of that. Uh, <laughs> that wonderful road trip, no, no we're not. Uh, we're going to continue this morning, though, in our uh, series on uh, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, in Philippians. And just a few things to remind us of as we get going this morning. This is a letter that Paul has written. He's writing it from um, prison. And he's writing it to this beloved church, this church that has been a partner um, in gospel ministry with him from the beginning. And, and they continually send care, and, and, and here they've sent Epaphroditus to him. And um, he is thankful for them, and they're concerned for him, but he is also concerned for them. Uh, he's concerned with them because there's growing oppression among uh, them from the, the culture around them, the Roman Empire. And and there's, they're beginning to waver a little bit, and there's beginning to be you know, some, some arguments among them about how best uh, to move forward and to stand firm. And, um, and, and that's one of the encouragements he's given them. One of the things he's, he's asked of them last week, if you remember, was that they would stand together, united uh, together for uh, the sake of the gospel. And uh, this week he continues um, that argument and gets a little bit more uh, into detail. And so if you would, let's bow our heads and ask the Lord for his work. Heavenly Father, we come this morning to your word, and we are expectant, for we know that you work uh, through your word and the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us, and to conform us more and more into the likeness of Christ Jesus, our Savior. And so we pray for that now, that you would be at work through your word, drawing us to yourself and deeper into the embrace of your love. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is God's word. It's without error in any part. It's given for our good and for his glory. So Paul's continuing this argument that he began back in chapter 1 about verse 12, and, and then it shifted in verse 27. He stopped talking about himself and began to talk about the, the Philippians and, and what they need to do. And uh, today he, he's going to keep going with that. And he does so by first giving them a picture of, of the privileges they have, of the, the great treasure they have uh, because of the work of Christ. And then he gives them a, a picture of what then is obligated from that, what their responsibility is. Here in our, in our text, there's a lot of these uh, phrases, uh, so if, and then the verse uh, 1, there's four of these if statements. You know, we hear the word if, and it often means that, like, well, maybe there's something that's, that's doubtful about these things. And that's not what Paul is, is uh, saying here. What he's using this for is, is rhetorical. It's more of a since you have, not if you have. And so for us this morning, as we read through it, realize that these things for the, the believer, for those who have placed their faith in Christ, that these first four privileges in verse one are ours, that we already have them and partake in them. And I use the word privileges, and I know that right now that comes with a lot of baggage, right? I mean, we talk about privilege and your privilege and my privilege, and, you know, we joke about your privilege showing and, and, and 
we're not going to talk about that this morning. But there's part of that movement that talks about privilege that has a, 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 some truth in it. And that when you have great privilege, you need to be a steward of your great privilege. And so Paul's laying out for them, here are your privileges. And then he lays out in the latter part of our passage this morning what being a good steward of that privilege would look like. What are you doing with your privilege? Because what you do with your privilege matters. And so we have these four great privileges. The first is if, there, if you have any encouragement in Christ. And it's, it's, it's not if, right? It's since you have encouragement in Christ. If you're here this morning and, and you've placed your faith in Him and you're resting in His work, you have encouragement in Him. And we all know that we need encouragement. We, we live in a world that's full of discouragement. We, li- we live in a world that's, that's full of all of us trying to climb to the top, and the way you do that is to step on the head of the person in front of you so you can climb higher. We want to feel better about ourselves, and so we're quick to put down those around us so we might feel a little bit better about ourselves. And so we need this encouragement, this encouragement that comes from being united to Christ. You may have heard of the man that uh, went, to, he went to a psychiatrist uh, recently, and, and he went, and, and like any doctor's appointment you have when it's not scheduled, the doctor says, what? Well, you know, what can I help you with? And he said, well, doc, I think I've got an inferiority complex. Psychiatrist is like, mm, okay, well, we, we can we figure that out. We'll run some tests and some assessments and ask some questions, and we'll get to the bottom of it. A few weeks later, he came back for his, uh, his follow-up appointment, and the doc said, I got some good news and I got some bad news. He's like, well, let, let, let's hear the good news. He's like, good news, you do not have an inferiority complex. He said, you're just inferior. And the man in outrage said, well, I, I want a second opinion. The psychiatrist said, well, I mean, you're ugly too. <laughs> That's the kind of encouragement that the world gives to us. It beats us down wherever we turn. And so we need this encouragement that comes in Christ. That word encourage means to come alongside, to strengthen, to build up. And that's what Christ does. He doesn't just hold the water bottle out while we run the race and hope that we pick his as we go by. He picks us up. He strengthens us. He builds us up. In fact, he carries us across the finish line. That's the encouragement of Christ. Classic example in Scripture is of Peter. Peter, this beloved apostle, Peter, who's been told that that on this rock I will build my church. Peter, who's told you're going to deny me, and he says, no way, Jesus. And if you're familiar with Scripture, you know Peter is a failure. He denies Christ three times. He disowns Christ, disassociates himself from Christ, distances himself as far as he can. I don't even know the man, he says. And so then happens the resurrection. Everyone's excited. Jesus is back. He's, he's been resurrected as he promised. And you've got to be wondering what Peter's thinking, right? Man, I do not look forward to that first conversation with, with Jesus. Uh, he was right, right? I mean, he's got to be feeling some anxiety about how that conversation is going to happen. And we get a picture of that conversation in John 21. Jesus pulls him aside and you think, okay, Jesus is going to give it to him now. He's going to chide Peter for being a failure. And what happens? As Jesus begins to ask Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes. And he says, what? Tend my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes. Yes, I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Why do you keep asking me? Of course, you know I love you. And then for the third time, he's told to go and feed his sheep. See, that encouragement that Christ gives us, that he restores us and he recommissions us for the work of the kingdom. 
He doesn't leave us in that lowly place. He, he restores us. Those new morning mercies that we experience each and every day are those being reminded that we are His. And by being His, we have work to do in the kingdom. And so do you have any encouragement in Him? Have you been brought out of the low places? Have you been made a saint? Do you have any comfort from the love, Paul says? The love of, of God the Father. Do you have any comfort? Well, just like we live in a world of discouragement, we live in a world full of tragedy full of sadness, full of, of grief. And we, just, we just had a video about crates in Ukraine, and we don't even need to turn on the news. We don't even need to know that there's a war in Ukraine to know that even in our own very lives, there are things that are, we need comfort in. That, that, that we have grief and sadness, like sea billows roll, right? They just keep coming. We need to be comforted. Probably the, the, the place we see this most poignantly in our lives is at a funeral. You show up at a funeral because the person that passed away had some impact on your life or, or maybe you know somebody in, in, in the family and so you show up to support them and you get in line uh, at the end of it to, to, to walk by and say your condolences and, and your hope is, okay, let's, let's get through the line and see the family and say you know, our, 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 our words of, of encouragement and, cons- and, and, and then move on with the day and somebody ahead of you in the line starts taking their time. And, 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 you, and you look around and somebody you know actually has a similar story of suffering and grief that the family's going through. Maybe it's, it's a, 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 a new widow and, and, and someone who's been through that already and they are holding each other and, and weeping together because they know each other's suffering and grief. I have a friend, his name is, is Witt, and Witt's father passed away in December of 2021. 20, uh, and I only see him maybe four times a year. And it's a great and joyous time when we get together. But it's actually those, those, those moments throughout uh, the year that when we're not together that, that I get text messages and phone calls from him and he gets them from me. And it's those moments in, in life where my dad would be there to pat me on the back or cheer me on or tell me that he's proud of me that Wit steps in and says, I want you to know how proud your dad would be of you. That, that, that Wit steps in when, it, when it's uh, my dad's birthday or the, the anniversary of my dad's passing that Wit steps in and says, you know, I love you. Why? Because he knows my grief. He knows my sadness. Folks, Jesus knows your grief. Jesus knows your sadness. To use an already tired phrase, he gets us. God the Father sent his only son into this world to be with us. To know our suffering and suffer with us, but also to suffer for us. That Christ might be the great comfort we need. That's the comfort that is promised to us in the love of God. And so Paul's saying, since you have this comfort, and then he says, if you have any, any participation in the Spirit, or, or another way, any fellowship in the Spirit, well, what does that mean? Well, we know that we wouldn't be a believer without the work of the Holy Spirit. Drawing us to life, changing our, our hearts from one of stone to one of flesh. And, and, and making Himself at home in us, and working in us to draw us more and more into con- Conformity, the likeness of Christ, transforming us through the word that he works in and through. That's what it means to have fellowship with the Spirit. And, and some of you know this because he, he, he gives to us these, these gifts and he bears fruit in our lives. And you know this if you've been a Christian for, for any amount of years, you know that the way you react to things today is probably not the way you reacted to them a few years ago. Where, where you would have lashed out in anger and, and envy and, and jealousy and malice, now you react with 
kindness and gentleness. You show a hope and a joy. There's a peace about you that comes from your fellowship with the Holy Spirit. He's at work in us. He gives us these gifts that are far beyond our own natural ability. So in these first three privileges, what Paul is really saying to them is, is since you have the work of the second person of the Trinity in your life, and since you have the work of the first person of the Trinity, and since you have the work of the third person of the Trinity, and then he begins to lay out what our response needs to be. But before this, he gives us this last privilege we have, and he says, have you any affection, any sympathy most scholars agree that this affection is that, that deep-seated gut feeling that we have for someone. And that the, the sympathy is then the, 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 the action that flows out of that feeling. And most say it's, it's Christ's affections for us and His sympathy towards us. And it's absolutely that can be true. Gordon Fee, who's wrote a more recent commentary that's kind of the standard for the modern commentaries in the book of Philippians, says it doesn't have to be that. Right? Paul could be writing about his affection and his sympathy towards them because what comes right after that is make my joy complete. And so maybe it's the, the, the affection and the sympathy that Paul has for them that he's saying, you know that I love you. you, you you've experienced my love for you and my concern for you and my sympathy toward you. Maybe it's the affection and the sympathy they have for one another. Have you experienced the affection and sympathy and the support of the, the body of Christ? If you've been around Sycamore at all and you've had a life event come that has brought sadness or suffering or grief or maybe it's brought joy with new life in your family, you have experienced the affections and the sympathies of this congregation because what happens is somebody sends an email about so-and-so needs a meal and then you've got to buy a second freezer at Costco to begin to fill up all the food that shows up at your house. You, I mean, like, it's like we might as well just have the church potluck at our place because of all the food somebody brings. Because of the love that we have for one another, the affection that we have with one another. And so Paul lays out in verse 1 these great privileges. And he's, he's reminding us that we're stinking wealthy. That, that Christ has earned for us all of these privileges. And so what are we going to do with our privilege? Well, he begins to lay out for us in verse 2 then what we are to do. And he says, complete my joy. By being of the same mind, having uh, the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And so what does he say? What, what you have to do with these privileges is what? Begin to work for unity. Establish and promote unity in the body of Christ. And that will fill up my joy. It will complete his joy. I, I kind of picture like one of those fundraising thermometers. It's Paul's joy here. And all the times he gets reports that they're, they're doing these things, that they're of one mind, that they're, that they're loving one another well, and they're living well in accord, that it just keeps getting full until it finally bursts out the top and there's like a celebration for it. But we have to remember where he's at. Paul's in prison. And, and, and prison then did not look a lot like prison now, right? He, he's chained to a Roman soldier throughout the day. They rotate in four-hour shifts. It's dark. It's dank. The food's probably not very good. There's no books for him to read. And as a scholar, that's a pretty big deal. We know that he's able to write or, or, or dictate letters. We know he's evangelizing the Roman soldiers. But at the end of the day, he is in prison. 
And so if I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. If I was writing this letter and I said, make my joy complete, the next thing that would be on the paper would be, get me out of here. I, like, you need to figure out how you're going to get me out of this place. And the next page of the letter would be like a diagram of the prison with the entrances and the exits <laughs> and a rough outline of the plan for you to get me out of there. That would make my joy complete. But Paul is actually modeling, even in this, what he's going to ask of us. He models the character that it takes to have this one mind and one love. Because his, his joy is tied to those that he has evangelized, to those that he has discipled. His joy is tied to the children that he has seen come to faith. If you're a parent and you have more than one kid, you know the joy you have uh, when your kids are getting along. It's this beautiful thing. You know, the days that I come home from work and my daughters are all playing nicely together, there's no bickering or arguing. It's not quiet, but it's joyful. And you can just sit there and you'll love it. The days I come home and they're not getting along and they're bickering and annoying one another and picking at each other, it's still very loud and it's grating. And, and, and they get to the point where I, I will finally say, y'all need to learn to love each other. Y'all need to learn to get along because there's coming a day when you're going to be all that you have. You're stuck with each other. And, and, and that's morbid, I know. But like, <laughs> at that point, I'm trying everything to just restore peace. <laughs> so we know the joy. How much more is our Heavenly Father's joy complete? How, how much more joy does our Heavenly Father get out of it when His children are getting along when his children are loving one another. Well, I can tell you that he went to great lengths because he sent his, his only son, his only begotten son, to lay down his life, to redeem us, and to reconcile us to our Heavenly Father and to each other. That he might have joy as we love one another. And it's hard. It is not easy. I understand that there are people that are just difficult to get along with, difficult to love. I'm one of those people. I get it. Amy Carmichael was a missionary in India, and she, uh, she had this um, ministry that was saving young girls from being temple prostitutes. And she'd bring them to her, her compound as she saved them, and they would be, you know, cleaned and, and, and given uh, food and, and education and, and be discipled and cared for. And she had this heart for there to be unity, not only among the missionary community, but unity in her ministry. So there's a story she tells that of two girls that came to her and they were in a fight. They were bickering over something. And so what did she do? Did she tell them she got to work it out? And they'd sit down. She tied their pigtails together <laughs> and told them that they could come back when they had worked it out. And a little while later, they came back and she untied them and they had settled their differences and moved on. It's hard. And sometimes we need our pigtails tied together. But I can tell you that you grow in love and affection towards one another when you have to live beside each other and you're praying with and for one another. And it will change the way you interact with others. Those very people that you can't stand as you begin to pray for them and pray with them and live life beside them will become people that you cherish. And that's what Paul's calling us to. 
he knows that it's difficult. And he gets to, to verses 3 and 4 and lays out for us that, that we can't do this without there being fundamental change in who we are and how we operate. That, that, that we have to actually have change in our character to do this. That the, we know that, that this living in one accord with one love can't happen. It doesn't happen in the world around us. Because what we settle so quickly into our little camps and begin our bickering with each other's camps, then we begin the bickering within our own camps, then we, we fracture into more camps. It just keeps going. It's a never-ending cycle. And so we have to be transformed by the power of the Spirit. And, and, and he says in verses 3 and 4 what this character has to look like. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. So verse 3 starts and says, the two big hurdles to, to you making my joy complete, to you living with one love and, 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 and in the same mind and being a full of cord, the two big hurdles are that you have selfish ambition and that you're conceited. No, not us. And then he begins to say, how do we undo that? To, 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 to seek unity. And the first thing he says is that the opposite then of, of this conceit is humility. That we need to have gospel humility. Because look, we all struggle with it. At the end of the day, we are all conceited. Right? What, what C.S. Lewis says at the end of his chapter on pride and mere Christianity, that the first step to dealing with your pride is admitting you are conceited. And if you don't do that, you are above all conceited. And, and we know it. Somewhere along the lines, we think we're better than others. That's something in some regards. Because we're conceited. We think too highly of ourselves. Right? Ann Landers, the great ethicist, said what? It was in the front, front of your bulletins. What? Don't let the affections of your dog confirm to yourself how wonderful you are. <laughs> but we do. They come running to us when we open that door, and we're like, man, I'm awesome. But the flip of that is that, not that we need to be just humbled, but we often think then, well, you know, I, my, my, my modesty, my, my, uh, my low self-esteem, I'm not in need of humility. I'm in need of, of, of being picked up. Well, no, our, our, our low self-esteem is rooted in our conceit. Because what it is is a wish that we could be better, that we could see ourselves as better than someone else. And so the way that we, we, we rid ourselves of this conceit is that we attack it with this gospel humility. Because hum humility is, is being lowly-minded. It was countercultural for those that were reading this letter. They were in a culture of duty and honor. Honor for your name, honor for your daddy's name, honor for ultimately the empire, right? And he's saying, no, what has to happen is you have to stop thinking about life through this lens of honor you have to stop thinking about your honor and your family's honor. You have to start putting that aside for the honor of Christ. You have to lift up His honor. And so being humble then is, is this call. It's not false modesty. It's not thinking lowly of ourselves. It's thinking rightly about ourselves. Humility and being humble is standing up at your full height and realizing how small you are. Sinclair Ferguson, in his um, 
commentary on the Beatitudes said it this way. He said that humility or meekness is being who you are in the presence of God, nothing more and nothing less. Well, Paul's already told us who we are. We're saints. We're saints. We're those that, that, that Christ has, has covered. That, and so being humble means living that out. Being humble means living in that, recognizing that we are saints, but also recognizing that we're saints only because of the grace of God. And so being humble is recognizing how God has lifted us up and all that he has given to us and receiving all of that and realizing how little we deserve what he has given to us. This is the key to overcoming the conceit in our hearts. It's this gospel humility. Secondly, he, he begins to compare this selfish ambition with unselfishness. And I say that because it's not a selflessness, right? He doesn't say, don't think of your own interest. He says, think not only of your own interest, but also the interest of others. And so it's, it is taking the, the, the entire focus of our life off of ourselves, which is very difficult, and beginning to look at the needs of others. And what we know is, is when we begin to walk beside each other and we begin to, to, to live life with one another, we begin to have our affections grow for one another, then we become interested in the caring and, 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 and filling the needs of those around us. We, we begin to care about being a blessing to them, not just to ourselves. We begin to seek out their good, not just our own. And so that's what Paul's calling us to. He, he's saying that, that these privileges we have that Christ has earned for us in the gospel demand a response and Paul's saying to, to if you want to unleash my joy then live out then live out your faith live out of your privilege you may have heard the name watchman knee before you may not have that's fine as well he was a, an apologist an evangelist a missionary in China and and he um ended up in, in prison during uh, the communist takeover, ended up dying in prison after being there for 20 years. But he, he, he wrote prolifically, and he tells a story of, of a, a, a village in southern China and in the hills, and you've seen the pictures. They've got the rice paddies, and they're terraced. And he tells the story of an, uh, an old farmer uh, who had the top rice paddy. He lived at the top of the hill. And he was a believer. He was one of the few in his village. And he would... would go in the mornings and he would begin and he would pump water up to his rice paddy and he would go about his day and then he'd come back and his paddy would be dry and what was happening was the man who owned the paddy right below him his neighbor was opening the dike and draining the water that watchman had pumped into his own and it happened for a few days and watchman realized like i'm, I'm gonna lose my crop and he was at wit's end of what to do and so he went to church on Sunday, and, and, and afterwards he met with some of the other men, and they began to talk about it and pray about it, and they came up with a plan. And the plan was this, that Watchman would get up a few minutes early, and he'd go down, and he would begin to pump water, and he would first fill his neighbor's rice paddy, and then he would fill his. And his neighbor was like, what in the world? Like, nobody does this. This is strange. This is weird. And he kept doing it. And finally the neighbor came and said, why are, you, why are you doing this? Why don't you just get mad at me and we fight about it? Why are you doing this? And Watchman says, this old farmer then had a chance to lay out the gospel for his neighbor. 
This is why I'm doing this. Because as Paul writes to the Philippians, I look not only for my own interest, but also for yours. He was still looking out for himself. He filled his rice paddy as well. But he also looked out for his neighbor. And over time, Watchman says that neighbor embraced Christ. He came to faith. Why? Because that old farmer was living out his privilege. So my question for you this morning is, are you living out of your privilege? Are you growing with those around you in one love? A love that's not just for each other, but a love that is for Christ. And out of that, a like-mindedness, a growing affection for the bride of Christ, for one another. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come this morning and we rejoice at all that Christ Jesus, our Savior, has earned for us. All that He has given to us. We come and rejoice at the great privileges we have. And pray that You, throughout this week, would remind us to live out of that privilege. That we might love, that we might seek to be a blessing to one another and that we might make your joy complete. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.